Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz, a commissioning editor on the Arts Desk. So we're back, and this time on a Friday. On today's episode, we're going to take a short walk along the River Thames from the FT's London offices to Tate Modern. But we're not going to meet an artist there. We're going to meet one of my favourite writers, Sheila Hetty. Sheila Hetty writes the kind of stories that take place as much in the characters' heads as they do in the outside world of plot. And novels like these, where the action, where the most interesting stuff is really in these thoughts and feelings, are some of my favourite books. When I first read her novel, How Should a Person Be, a few years ago, I was hooked. How Should a Person Be is subtitled A Novel from Life, and it plays really interestingly with this boundary between fiction and real life. It's a kind of freewheeling, episodic, coming-of-age tale um, written from a writer's point of view. It's a really great kind of meditation on friendships, about how friends shape each other, particularly when you're in your 20s, um, and also where we draw the boundaries in our relationships. Sheila Hetty published her first book, The Middle Stories, when she was just 24. She's now in her early 40s, and she published a book last year called Motherhood. Like How Should a Person Be, the book Motherhood takes as its starting point a question, should I have a child? And also, what does it mean not to have a child? I was really surprised, actually, when I saw that Sheila was coming all the way to London from Toronto to see an exhibition at Tate Modern of paintings by the French artist Pierre Bonnard, because as far as I knew, there was no obvious connection between the two. But as I was about to discover, Sheila's grandfather, George Hetty, was also a painter who loved Bonnard, and recent events in her life had set her thinking about Bonnard's painting in a profound way. I'd never met her before in person, but her works had a real impact on me and it shaped the way I've read so much other contemporary fiction. Even when I interviewed Sally Rooney on the podcast six months ago, we talked about Sheila Hetty and about the way her work shows what's possible in writing now, how you can break with traditional moulds. So all of these thoughts were going through my head when I set out from the FT's offices and walked along the Thames early one morning. I arrived at the gallery before it had opened to the public. It was completely deserted except for the staff who worked there who were getting ready for their day. And when I went into the rooms of the Bonnard exhibition, it felt really large and echoey when usually it's absolutely packed with people. Sheila, thank you for talking to me on the podcast. You're welcome. I wonder if I could first ask you a general question about what draws you to painting as an art form. You're a writer, but someone who I understand has been sort of interested in painting for a long time. I, I like thinking about writing through the lens of what painters do rather than through what other writers do, I suppose. Painters deal with formal problems in a more 
interesting to me sort of way, always trying to push what, what you can do on the canvas and the various different ways that you can represent in a way that I think writers tend to be a little bit more conservative. In the case of um, Bonnard, like, he painted not from looking at models ever, but just from thinking from memory and recollection. And as a writer, you're always <laughs> writing from memory and recollection. You never write with the thing in front of you trying to represent it. So should we start walking around the show? Yeah. As you say, Bonnard painted um, not from life, but from memory, which I think is one of the really fascinating aspects of this show. And and why some of these works seem to me to have a certain strangeness about them. I'm interested in, in how you might perceive any parallels in your own work. It's different with different books, of course, but I think one thing that I see in his paintings that I feel like I understand formally on some level is in painting there's often like one, one you see that the painter's standing in one place and all the objects relate to that single perspective from which the painter is looking at the room or whatever. But... With Bonnard, because he's not looking at the objects, he's just recollecting them, there's this strange sort of set of perspectives in a single painting. So a jug might be looked at sort of slightly from one angle and the table from a slightly other angle. There's this way that the objects hang together not quite naturalistically. And I feel like there's something similar in the kind of writing that I do, which is... um, an angle on my life, but not always the same angle. So I feel like certain scenes are quite close to my life, um, almost as they were, and others are so distorted, and it's all within the same frame. So there's something similar going on there. Just if we walk over to this room, there's a painting of Bonnard's called Café. It's a deceptively simple scene of a woman drinking a coffee cup at sort of what seems to be a breakfast table. Maybe it's mid-morning, there's a, there's a dog, there's someone else passing something across the table. Most of the picture plane is taken up by this red checkered tablecloth. And yet, what you say about the tilting perspectives, about the fact that we see the top of a teacup, we see the teapot from a slightly different angle, this to me seems to be kind of typical of the thing about Bonnard, which is everyday and domestic and familiar, and yet we see it in a way that feels strange and new. Yes, and there's this strange ribbon down the um, right-hand side of the canvas which doesn't look like it's depicting anything that was actually there. It's just a decorative element which gives, which gives the painting such a strange quality, like a kind of, well, what's he doing? Why, why is that ribbon there? Why is that design there on, on the edge? And if everything else is, in some sense, what he is seeing in his mind or recollecting, or, well, that was, that's what breakfast look, looks like here, what's that ribbon doing there? And I, I love that. It's, um, he's saying this is art, you know? Mm. It's, this, is, this isn't life. This, is, this isn't artistic representation. And, and this design down the right is just makes the composition whole and, and, and adds something kind of beautiful and mysterious to it. He's not just trying to say this is what the room looked like. There's something else going on. Something that I'm interested in in terms of this and your work as well is, is the fact that it is, it's everyday, it's domestic, it's life as it happens to us day in, day out. Um, you know, sometimes it's said of your books that, quote, not a lot happens, but in fact, you know, life is what happens. Mm-hmm. 
I think, at least for myself, um, life happens so much in the mind and recollecting life and thinking about it and trying to understand it and trying to understand how to go through it. And to me, that's that's such a huge component of life, not any great events. You know, it's just how do you... Um, life is not just relating to other people, but your thoughts about your relationships to other people. So, yeah, I feel like my books take place much more in the mind than they do in the the actual interactions. And I think that's true in these paintings as well. Like there's, yes, those are the people that are presumably around him. That's his wife, that's his dog. But that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is how he sees his wife, how he sees his dog, what he sees of their relationship, his yeah, his perception of it. The per, his perception of it is so much more interesting than, than what's going on. Should we make our way through? So... Here we're sitting in front of Bonnard's painting, nude crouching in the tub. Yes, it's sort of this muted painting, sort of centered in the canvas is a nude woman in a shallow, probably metal tub, and her arms are reaching down. And Bonnard wouldn't have, have posed his wife like this. He's not, he's not actually painting from a model here, is he? He has this wonderful quote, um, Somebody asked him, well, would you paint this object? I don't know how it happened. Maybe she brought an object to him. Would you paint this, uh, this plate? And he said, uh, no, I haven't lived with it long enough to paint it. And I love that, this idea that he had, that he had to have lived with something for a long time to paint it. He had to paint objects that were very deeply familiar to him that had been in his life for years, these jugs, this, these windows, his wife, just what was familiar and intimate to him. Those were the things that he painted. Um, it's a very different way of relating to subject matter. You know, that, and and I, I think that's kind of beautiful because... To me, what that affirms is what life naturally does, which is it begins to repeat. And especially as you get older and life stops changing so much and, and there's more consistency, there's a way of feeling like there's something, there's some failure in that. Well, shouldn't life always be interesting? Shouldn't things always be happening and changing? And, and what Bernard's painting sort of show me is that, no, there's a kind of um, solidity and truth and beauty in the repetitions and being able to make art from these repetitions that... Yeah, they cohere into a single form. Well, in your in your novel, how should a person be? It seems like one of part of that question is um, also kind of where should a person be? Should you be constantly seeking out newness? Should you be travelling? Should you be sort of going where all the cool art kids are? Or um, you know, how should you be, and, and where should you be? A, a part of the same question. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think um, in writing that book, I was trying to reassure myself that it's okay to be in one place. It's okay to have this one friend. It's okay to to limit yourself because um, that's the only re- way to reach any kind of depth, you know. And, and and in fact, this this compulsion for new experiences, which seems like a broadening of your horizons, and which can seem like um, new information, is can become the same information over and over again. And how should a person be? Um, the narrator of that book uh, is a writer called Sheila, who has a friend, Margot, who's a painter. In, in real life, you have, you have a friend, Margot, who's a painter. And part of the novel is conversations that you recorded and transcribed, as well as emails. And I'm wondering what that process of, of kind of translation is between this real material of life and a work of fiction. Um, well, there were hundreds and hundreds of pages of transcripts, so even just 
even just the act of choosing, you know, seven or 12 out of hundreds of pages is saying what's interesting or what's interestingly not interesting. And if you take the whole entire transcript, you can get to the essence of it. You don't need hundreds of pages to, to say what it is. So I think for me, translation from life into art is just trying to find, like, yeah, the essence of life in little moments that reveal what the texture of the whole is like. So that process has evolved in motherhood, which is, I mean, you know, the, you don't have these transcriptions and emails in the same way, but there is there's still a sense that the narrator's life feels, well, I don't know, is it, it, it feels as a reader that it's, it's not your life, of course, that this is, a, this is a creation, but there's some relationship there that's really interesting to think about. Yeah, it's, there, there's, there, it has something to do with my life, um, but then the context that I put the character in, um, I wanted it to be not exactly where I find myself as a woman among other women, but where many women find themselves among other women. So, you know, in the book, there's this sort of expectation or pressure or this feeling of being crowded by all these people having children. Um, And I wanted to give the character that because I think that a lot of women find themselves in that place. I read something that to me seemed really interesting that you wrote about allowing the thoughts in your life that were kind of the wallpaper of your life come to the foreground, which is interesting, you know, sitting in this exhibition because that's quite a kind of painterly metaphor as well. And these these thoughts that are the wallpaper of life, you know, when you're a woman in your 30s, I think particularly children and childbearing and, and your mother and whether you might be a mother, these are part of the wallpaper. Yes, and I found all those sort of ambient thoughts very irritating, you know? And um, I was just trying to do everything I could to push them from my mind and and say to myself, like, think about more important things. Like, this is so distracting and this is so frustrating. And uh, the more that I did that, the more I realized, actually, you know, you should probably pay attention to these thoughts and there's probably something here and and there's always something in those thoughts that you want to push away and and those thoughts that feel irritating and and like they shouldn't be there. Well, why are you thinking that they shouldn't be there? You know, why not actually pay attention to them? So the book, yeah, it was difficult to write the book because that's not what I want to think about. I, I don't want to put all that thought into the question of maternity and into the question of my body as a woman and and what I wanted to do versus what it seems to want to do or, you know, what it doesn't want to do frustratingly or gladly, you know. Um, But I just hadn't seen that depicted in literature, this, um, this moment in the lives of many people where that question of whether to have children what it means not to was the central question and to try to look at it philosophically um, and also try to look at it through the lens of, well, biologically, you know, because we're not just philosophical creatures, we're, mm. we're animals and, yeah. And often the, the, the philosophical way of thinking is not always the way that the thoughts actually happen in your head. You know, when you formulate them or if you were to write an essay about them, that's how they would come out, but that's not really at least in my head, how they exist. No, it's so circular and so repetitive. Mm. And I try to do that in the book, like give that feeling of how exhausting and frustrating those questions are, that they don't quite answer themselves. And there's this spiraling, you know, and hopefully you spiral to another place. But in the moment, it just feels like spiraling. Should we walk on? Sure. In Toronto, I work in um, Margot's painting studio. I, I go there every morning, and we work every morning together. Um, Margot Williamson, who's 
friend of mine who's that Margot and how should a person be and so when I'm working I see her canvases progress every day and uh, you know in this room that we're in it's so interesting that Tate took the frames off five of the paintings and this is what I <laughs> this is what I see every day you know as I'm working and what's so beautiful I, I love that they did this what's so beautiful is what they say is that they wanted you to see the paintings the way that Banar saw them as he was working on them which is not in a gilded frame you know and that makes sense because if you're recalling a scene, there's no edges around recollection. And you kind of feel like that, especially when the frames are taken off the canvases, that there's this kind of way in which the paintings could conceivably move off onto the wall in a way that many other painters, you would, you would feel that, that even with the frames off, it's still bound by the, by the edges. And you don't feel that with these. So there's one that's just in front of us, um, I think it's called The Table, and it's similar to the painting we were looking at earlier uh, of the, the people having coffee here. It seems like it's, it's maybe lunch or it's another meal, but it's, it's a similar scene that the table cloth laid with all different kinds of plates and things takes up most of the canvas. But, um, I mean, the way that, that memory works, it's a sort of it's a real scene, but it's not a real scene because it's a recollected scene and a remembered scene. Um, you know, hence all the strange perspectives that you were talking about before, Maybe also this slight feeling of instability. Does that, does that say something about the nature of memory to you? I guess so. You feel in these, in these paintings that the colours are not necessarily the colours that they would have been in real life, but they're not, not the colours they would have been in real life, but there's some strange relationship to the colours that life is. And it's interesting because he was painting at this time that people were doing all sorts of very innovative things. This is 1925 he painted this. So, you know, we're sort of in the wake of Cezanne, and this is, I think, around the same time that Brock and Picasso were doing their revolutions. And Bernard at the time was sort of thought not to be as uh, revolutionary. But he is doing that too, but in a much more subtle way because... He is playing with time, and the way that the objects are on the canvas does show sort of multiple times on the same plane. Like we're talking about, like, those plates are not all looked at from the same perspective in the same moment. But it's so subtle. I'm interested in how this might, what the sort of parallels and comparisons might be to your work, how time functions in your work and the way that you write. Well, I think a lot of writers use time as sort of storytelling time. So there's, there's a narrative that goes from A to B to C to D, and that's how time is the passing of, of narrative. And I, I feel like for me, what's more interesting about time is the way that you have all these generations inside you. You know, so time kind of collapses inside the, the present living individual. There's the time of all your ancestors that kind of manifests in who you are and how you live and is relived in some sense in you and you know the the soul of like the people that that your life comes from and I think your brain is sort of probably formed in the in a similar form to how your ancestors brains were formed that life relives every time and so I, I, I like the idea of time as this kind of return of of the people who previously lived and in your body there they are and what you're supposed to do with time is not just for yourself or in relationship to your own life, but for those who came before you and, and in relation to their lives in some sense. So, I mean, there's this very individualistic way we look at 
the self today and it's just me, you know? But the more that I write and the more that I think, the more I feel like I'm not just me, I'm, I'm all the people that came before me. And what I tried to do in this last book was sort of not just solve my problems, but solve the problems of my grandmother and her mother and, yeah, all these people who kind of, the residue of them is in me. It just, it somehow feels more true and more interesting and more connected and less alienating to, to think about the self that way. It's interesting in, in motherhood, that idea of maybe choosing not to pass things forward, but to pass things back. Can you say a bit about how, about what that is and how that feels? Um, yeah, there's, there's nothing that we can know about, about really the world of spirit, if it exists, or we don't know anything, you know, all we know is what we can touch, but there was a feeling that I had after my father died um, of suddenly seeing colors. And I'd never really noticed colors before, which sort of sounds strange, but I felt like I was suddenly seeing how, I was suddenly sort of overwhelmingly moved by the colors in the world. And like I had this new sense that I hadn't had before. And, and perhaps it was just the way that everything feels heightened after, after you lose a parent or after some cataclysmic thing happens suddenly you're alive in a new way because the world feels so present to you but it could have become alive in so many different ways and I had this desire of like wanting to capture the colors and 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 wanting to keep them which I imagine is is how many painters must feel you just want you want to capture that color you want to say what how they seem together and I just had this thought of one day like I wonder if there's some way in which when an ancestor dies if the their spirit somehow comes into the lives of those still living. And if that is so, you know, then my father's would be, have carried his, his painter father's spirit inside him, and then that would have got into me, and, and here I am now sort of seeing colors the way my grandfather might have. What he loved about Bonnard was the colors. That's when he describes his favorite painting. He doesn't start by describing the objects in it. He starts by describing the colors. So... It's, it's, it's horrible to have somebody you love die, but it's, it's also a portal to like a whole new um, way of perceiving the world and, and seeing and feeling things that you didn't feel before. Yeah. <laughs> Are you writing differently? Um, I think so. It's still so soon. It was only five months ago, so it's still a little soon to say, but a little bit because nothing seems to matter in the same way anymore like when somebody you love dies like all the things that mattered so much stop mattering in the same way and and I feel like there's a certain kind of liberation in that when you're working and as an artist you just realize that that doesn't even matter as much as you thought it did and and that can bring a new kind of looseness or something to your to your writing should we continue around the show I like this quote. These photographs of Bonnard in a corner of a studio were taken last summer at Deauville as intimate testimony of the solitary and simple life of the artist. And it's just so, you know, they have a photograph of him sitting in front of the window smoking, you know, in his solitary and simple life. But of course, he had a wife and he had a mistress. And no one's life is actually that solitary and simple. But it's the nice romance of mm. that a life can actually be simple. But also someone's taking the photograph, aren't they? Exactly. <laughs> yes, there's somebody there taking a photograph yeah. in the room with him. Like, how simple is that? How solitary is that?
So this self-portrait that we're looking at, the boxer, you know, it's not conventional in that he's not sort of holding an, a paintbrush and standing at an easel and sort of scrutinising himself. Instead, he's shirtless and holding up a fist in the position of a boxer. It's an it's a f- odd self-portrait in that sense. We know, you know, that he can't, you can't paint yourself as a boxer and be making a painting at the same time. So again, it's this, this process of transition into memory. Yeah, he wasn't looking at himself in the mirror in that pose. And it's funny because he's, it's called the boxer, but there's really like no strength in his posture. Yeah, there's, it's, it's such a strange picture. Do you think about your own writing in relation to artistic self-portraits, like in that sense of that transition from something that's personal and and alive to something that's a work of art and, in a sense, removed from the the person? Yeah, and I don't really think that I'm writing about myself, even though in a lot of factual ways I may be. It just, I feel like I'm making an art object and I'm using myself the same way he's using the shape of his body, but it's not about his body. It just uses his body the same way that he uses a jug. Because, so I feel like I I use myself in that same way. That it's you. It's good to have a. You need to have a model, and you're the closest model that you have to what a human is. So, um, so I, I use myself in that sense. But it's not because I'm interested in myself. Um, I'm not trying to like do psychoanalysis on myself in any way. It's just the closest self to me. Yeah. Should we walk through? So the room that we're in now is painted, it's a big room, it's painted this kind of pale, creamy yellow colour. It sort of sings. Something that Bonnard's critics at the time said of his work was that he was painting happiness. I'm not sure about that. What's What's your feeling about his relationship to happiness? I don't feel like the paintings make me happy. I don't think that they're happy paintings. I see, I can see why people might have thought that at a time. It's a very simple reading. I, I see there's more sadness in, in the paintings than, than happiness. Or at least an evenness, you know, the way that, that life is, is all things. Maybe it comes back to that idea of it being a composite experience, that it's not a moment, a flash of happiness and inspiration the slow build-up of days, some of which are happy, some of which are less happy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, they say that everyone has a certain level of happiness, you know, the sort of predetermined, and no matter what happens to you, bad things, good things, you'll always sort of return to that level. And, and all of these paintings seem to be at whatever, the same level. Is that a theory, something that you believe in? Yeah, I, I think that that's my experience of the world, that you always sort of come back to your, your characteristic level of happiness. So um, how should a person be and motherhood are both questioning novels. They're asking these questions about how should we live? What does it mean to mother? What does it mean not to mother? Are they interested in the idea of of happiness and sort of or fulfillment maybe in in life? Is that is that something that you think about? Um, Maybe more trying to find your way through all the patterns of how you're supposed to be and yeah, I mean, I think I think the the best life that you can live is one that that doesn't take the forms that you, you that you unconsciously feel like you have to embody. Like if you can sort of get around those, if they're not native to you, I think that's a better life. Not necessarily unthinkingly conforming to the expectations that 
have been passed on to you? Or? Yeah, I mean, especially in terms of motherhood. I mean, I think just having children is... I think of it now as a calling, and if you're called to it, you should do it. And if you're not called to it, maybe not, you know? Um, we don't have to all do it. It's not important for the world um, to have children. We obviously have more than enough humans. And so if you feel like you can make a great citizen of the world and, 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 and create an empathetic person and that's what you can do and that's a gift that you have, then for sure do it. Obviously the world needs that, but otherwise there's so much else to do, you know? When you wake up, do you, do you feel there's so much to do? Yeah, but not, but not interesting things. I mean, just the daily things. But no, I mean, it's, it's very nice when I can clear a day and actually do the work that I feel is important for me to do. But, you know, so often it's just everything else crowds it out. So when does the writing happen and how do you make space for that? Um, well, I wrote 15 minutes before I came to see you. you just, I just make space. Well, sometimes I have, like if I'm at home and I have, I'm in my routine, then I, then I like work all morning and, and have that concentrated time. But if not, I can just find time in between other things. I don't know. It somehow happens. It happens. So 15 minutes before we met, you just had a thought and said, I want to get this, I want to write this down. Um, I'm working on a new book, and uh, a friend that I was out with last night wanted to read it. And this morning, I, I thought, okay, I'll, I've got 20 minutes. I'll send it to her. And I thought, oh, I, actually, I can, I can make some changes. So I just edited it and took some chapters out and moved some things around and then sent it to her. So it wasn't new writing. It was editing. And for you, is editing an important kind of creative thing? Yeah, it changes the book. I mean, the stuff that I took out was stuff that everyone wanted me to take out all along. All my other friends thought I should take it out. And I thought, no, 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 it's very important that it's there. And then I took it out this morning. And I thought, actually, I think they were right. It didn't need to be there. So now I have a friend reading it without. And I'll see if she says, there's just something missing. Then I'll know that I shouldn't have taken it out. <laughs> everyone else was wrong all along. Yeah. <laughs> but getting that kind of feedback, it's so necessary and so tough. Yeah, it's, it's tough, but it's also fun, because like, um, it's important and interesting to see it through other people's eyes, and I just share my work with so many of my friends all the way through, because I, it's, you know, like, it's almost like stepping back from the canvas, like I imagine like a painter paints, and then they step back and see what it looks like, and then they move close, and for me, like, I, the stepping back is showing it to somebody else, hearing their response, you know, and then I can go back to it. And people give feedback in very different ways. So one friend will have an hour-long conversation with me, and I'll get, like, four pages of great notes. And another friend, as they're reading it, will just, like, send me text messages and, um, and you know, excerpts of the sentences that they like or paragraphs. And, and some people take months to read it. Like, it's, it's, all, it's all different. It's just part of my relationships with people. And I read stuff that my friends write and give them feedback. It's just part of our relationship. So you, were you 24 when your first book was published, mm-hmm. The Middle Stories? I wonder how daily life as a writer is, is different for you now than then. Presumably there's more security now, but, but what are the other differences? Um... There's more confidence. There's more sense of trusting myself. I have 20 years of experimenting and writing to, to draw on, so I'm not starting from nothing. Whereas when I was 24 and I, or in my early 20s and writing my first book, I just felt like I was starting from absolutely nothing. And I had to build up every single element, book by book. Um, I had to build up uh, uh, the sent- how I wanted the sentence to sound on the page. I had to build up... What did I want to think about on the page? I had to build up, what do I believe character is? So at this point, I feel like I have many of those things. It's just so different. Are you still experimenting? Yeah, yeah, always, because 
I'm still so curious about so much and, and my feeling about what life is changes and so the writing has to change. When you say that you, you're more confident, do you feel more confident with every book that that book will be good, that people will receive that book in, in the way that you want it to be received? Or? No, I wouldn't say the confidence extends to that. It's more just alone in the room. I know how to trust myself. That's what I mean by confidence. I know to follow things and that following things is a good thing and I can always go somewhere else. Whereas I think when I was younger, I really had to train myself to follow my impulses. But now I realize that's the only way to proceed. That's good advice. <laughs> <laughs> Sheila Hetty, thank you for walking around the Bon Air exhibition with me. It was so fun. Thank you. So I enjoyed doing that interview even more than I thought I might. And I think something to do with that is the fact of where we were in an exhibition. There's something about talking to somebody and it not being sitting across the table from each other with microphones. It's something about the freedom and the looseness of being able to look at paintings while speaking to somebody. I felt like it opened up the conversation in a different kind of way. I, I don't know, maybe it takes the pressure off things. It's a bit like when you have to have a difficult chat with somebody about something, you go for a walk in order to do it. So you don't have the intensity of eye contact all the time. I think by freeing up your looking, it sort of frees up the conversation as well. I was really struck by how thoughtful Sheila was, how specific she was in her observations about Bonnard, but also the way that she responded to his work. And I loved it when she said that, that you know, Bonnard was interested in incorporating different perspectives all in one painting, like Picasso was doing, but unlike Picasso's kind of cubist experiments, Bonnard wasn't doing this in a sort of self-consciously experimental way. He was doing it because he felt like it was true to life. It was his memory of life and the people he loved and the things that he loved distilled into the canvas. And I went back to the exhibition after speaking to Sheila and what she said made me see the works in a different way and made me feel differently about them. That's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time on a Friday from now on. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at everythingelseft.com. Everything Else is produced by David Waters. I've been Griselda Murray-Brown, and our music is composed by Fatima.